So we are in week five of Galatians as we've been walking through this wonderful book. And we've been seeing over the previous weeks how Paul has just been knocking down the law, saying, man, it's not the law, it's faith. It's faith. That's what Jesus does in the life of a person. You come before him with faith to receive the precious gift of salvation. You don't have to keep all of these rules. There's no need for all these rules. It's all about faith. So I think maybe the question at this point, when you get through Galatians, and maybe as the church at Galatia was reading it, they may have asked, then what is the law good for? You know, last week I caught some of you guys off guard with my, uh, my journey reference whenever I started, you know, singing my, my song, Keep on believing, you know, that one. Um, you guys like that. So, you know, as I was thinking through this one, the song that kept popping in my head is, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. No, no, no. you know, that one. So that was, you know, that was the, the, the thought I was thinking of with my, uh, what is the law good for? If it's all about faith in Christ, then why do we have the law? That's a question that, it's a good question that must be asked. So let's keep reading here as Paul is writing the church in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. He's keeping on with that theme. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So Paul has made this case in the first three chapters pretty convincingly that the law plays absolutely no part in declaring us righteous before a holy God. Nor can it produce even a small tremor in our hearts toward getting us there. Paul says we are declared judiciously righteous when we believe that the promise that God's Son, Jesus, died upon a cross for our sins and rose again and we receive the spiritual power through the Holy Spirit. That is where the power is found. It's amazing, by the way, how unified our Bible is. From cover to cover, it teaches this promise based on faith. So then there's this natural question. If there is no purpose, then for the law, is there a purpose at all? What is the law good for? And Paul says in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? And he says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So do we still use laws today in our society to good effect? Are laws good for our society? You guys can talk back to me. Are laws good for our society? Do they help with law and order in our society? Don't we use parents' laws with our kids? Yeah, we do. With our children, we say things like, you will tell the truth. You will do your homework. When you get home from school, that is a law. You will not play in the street when it's busy with cars. You will eat your broccoli. In my home, it's you will do the dishes. 
That is your job. You will sweep the floor. You will wipe down the table. All of these things are laws in the home. And you will do them whether you feel like it or not. Is Paul throughout Galatians telling us not to use laws? And don't we even use laws sometimes in church? Think about it. We say things like, you should read your Bible. You know, I even said this morning, parents should be having conversations with their children about Jesus. All of these things, you should flee temptation, even when you feel like indulging in it. Those are statements of law. Is Paul telling us to reject all of that kind of talk? No, he's not. Is Paul saying that it's bad? Obviously, no. Paul frequently in his teachings about the gospel had to stop and answer this question. You know, one of the signs you are starting to feel and understand the Gospels whenever you start asking these types of questions. And Paul has a really good answer for it. So let's look at it here in verse 19. He asks, why then the law? Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That key word there, I stopped on it for just a second. The law was our guardian. Some translations put that as tutor. Paul might be referring here maybe to like a school teacher or a nanny, one who oversees a child, training them up in the ways of adulthood. And so whenever you think about this way of guardian, the law being our guardian, I think there's really three things that we can pull out of this text looking at the law being a guardian for us. And these three are, 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 are ways that we use the law in our life every single day. First of all, it's to curb. Through threats of punishment or consequences, the law helps keep our sin nature back. Because we think, as logical human beings, if I commit this sin, sometimes we think this way whenever we're young, we don't our frontal lobe's not developed and we don't get there yet. But if we commit this sin, here is the consequence. That's the law. In society, in a society of laws, they say, if you break this law, this will be your punishment. So many things today in our world are ordered, when we say an ordered society, that we are able to live and flourish in is a society that has a law that pushes back on the sin of humankind. If there were not laws in the land and sin was not checked by the laws of the land, people could act on every inclination and every emotion that they've had. I don't know about you, but 
I've had times when I've wanted to just go strangle someone. I have. I've had times when there's been a dog that has been vicious and gone after children. In my mind, I just want to go shoot that dog. That's my evil, wicked, sin nature wanting to react to a situation. What keeps my sin nature in check in a law society? It's the consequences of breaking that law. So we have the law there to curb our sin nature. The law says you may feel like committing adultery, but this is what it will do to your marriage, your family, your heart, and the glory of God. And so if a man or woman breaks the law, even when they don't feel or obeys the law, even when they don't feel like it, it curbs the sinful effects of their sin. All right, so that's one thing. The law is a guardian. It curbs us. Number two, the law is good there. It's good for us, and it's there to show us as a mirror. A mirror. The law reflects to us how sinful we are. The law reveals to us what truly a truly righteous heart should look like. It shows us the way our heart should be. So by looking into the mirror of the law and comparing the actual state of our hearts to it, we realize just how sinful and twisted and wicked our hearts really are and our need for a Savior. When we use the law as a mirror, we need a Savior. So when we think about the commandments, commandment number nine, thou shalt not lie, it shows me that I am supposed to love honesty so much that I'm never tempted to lie, even when twisting the truth would gain me advantage or get out of a bad situation. It reflects that mirror for me. Command number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery, shows me that I'm supposed to love purity so much that any sexual desire I have for someone else besides my spouse is outweighed by my love of purity and doing things God's way. It's the mirror. Commandment number six, thou shalt not kill, shows me that I'm supposed to be so aware of God's kindness that I would not dare think of hateful thoughts. The illustration I gave before about just wanting to choke someone or take out that animal. The law reflected the mirror of my hateful heart in that moment, in that situation. My hateful heart was acting out and the law reflected that. Commandment 10 shows me that I am supposed to be so satisfied with God, so trusting of his plan for me that I don't get jealous when someone else gets what I want. Because when I look in the mirror of those laws, I say, man, my heart is wretched and wicked. I need Jesus. I'm in trouble. You know, I'm merely, and because of the, you know, the law reflects really the opposite of what my heart truly is in so many situations. And merely forcing my heart to do the right thing won't change it. You know, I've heard the law compared uh, in regard to a thermometer, not a thermostat. That can, you know, that can change the temp. A thermometer just shows you what the temperature of your heart is, but the gospel is the thermostat that can actually change you from the inside out. Martin Luther said, the law made me hate God, 
the more law showed me what I should be, the more I realized how much I wasn't. If you don't love something, no command is going to make you change that. Now, how many of you guys have a vegetable that you hate? Yeah, I've got celery. I can eat almost any vegetable out there but celery. Like, I have this weird aversion to celery that's just awful. I don't, tell, I, can't, I don't care how many times you tell me to eat celery, it's not going to change the fact that I hate it. And I'm not going to eat it. it will, if it's the last thing on this earth, I'll have to think really long and hard if I'm dying of starvation before I eat celery. I hate it that much. But if you love something, you don't need a command to eat it, right? Like, I love steak. You don't have to command me to eat steak because I love it. You see the, the difference, the give and take here. If you love it, there's no command. What the law does, therefore, as the mirror, is it drives us to our need for Christ. And then Paul says, verse 19, why then the law? Verse 24, he answers it. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So it's a curb keeping us from further damage of sin. It's a mirror showing us our need for a Savior. And thirdly, it is a guide. It's a compass or it's a map. After being saved, the law shows us the best way we can please the God we love. The law perfectly reveals God's character to us and shows us what a life pleasing to him looks like. I like to think about it like this. Anybody like trains? Any train lovers out here? Anybody likes to hop on Amtrak and go around? No, no big train lovers? It, a train tracks can point us in the right direction. Think of the law as the train tracks, pointing us in the right direction. But it's powerless, the train is, to move along those tracks. The gospel is the locomotive. After we've been given the engine power to obey, the law can still help us know the direction we should go. Because it is the track that we move Along The law drives us in desperation to grace, but an experience of grace drives us in devotion back to the law. Having been justified by grace, we now desire to please the God who saved us. And we learn that from the law. So those are the three uses for the Christian. We've heard Paul throughout Galatians just beat up. You don't need the law for salvation. You don't need it. It's only by faith. So what is the law good for. You see, it's a curb keeping us from damage of sin. It's a mirror showing us how messed up we are and how desperate we are for Jesus. And it's a guide showing us how to act in order to please God. But the power to actually change the heart, the power to produce righteous desires in the heart is only found in the finished work of Christ. Only he can do that by the power of the resurrection. So I said this last week, and this is kind of the theme of Galatians. The, the term, it is finished, the first time we believed, it is finished. We are released from the penalty of sin. And as we continue to believe it is finished, we are released from the power of sin. Let me illustrate it this way. So in first grade, my parents thought it'd be a great idea for me to get piano lessons. 
You guys may have heard me talk about piano lessons in the past. My granny and my aunt are phenomenal pianists. You know, just, you know, my granny, she had perfect pitch. She could hear a song on the radio and just sit down and play it. Just amazing, that, that the talent that she had. And, you know, as a first grader, I had to endure several years of just cruel and unusual punishment all through elementary school of taking piano lessons, of being forced to play. The moment I got home from school, it was, do your homework. Sit down and practice your piano before I could even go outside and play with my friends or kick on my Nintendo. My mom required 30 minutes of piano every single day. So I would start around, you know, 4.04, and I'd finish around 4.28, and I'd have a bathroom break in there. And of course, I got hungry and I needed a snack. So that 30 minutes of piano you know, ended up being like nine minutes. You know, by the time it's all sudden, of course, mom got wise to my tricks after a while and, um, you know, cracked the hammer down on me. And then the worst thing about it was the piano recitals. And those things were awful. I had to dress up and I had to go play in front of hundreds of people a song that my parents have heard 3,000 times before, but now I had to play it perfect in front of thousands of people, or hundreds of people, never thousands, hundreds of people, and uh, for, before an audience of total strangers, finally, in about ninth grade. So yeah, eight years of torture. About ninth grade, my parents finally realized that I'm not going to be the next Beethoven, that I didn't love it, I didn't have a desire for the piano, so my parents finally released me from this tyranny and said, we'll make it optional. You no longer have to play or take piano lessons. And I said, thank you, thank you. Did I continue with the lessons? No, I was done. They were over. And so they released me from that. So the rest of high school, I didn't take piano. Great, it was wonderful. I get into college though and the strange thing begins to happen. I started really to admire people with musical talent. I loved to hear them play, especially those who could sit down and play the piano and lead worship from the piano. And like this admiration and this love for music began to overtake me. And all the things that had been such a bondage to me as a kid growing up that I just couldn't stand slowly turned into something later in life that became liberating, that I just enjoyed, that I, I enjoyed listening to the music and singing the songs you know, Paul is saying that many of us view the commandments of God and the fellowship of him almost like I viewed the piano, almost like bondage when we think about the law. And that's because truly we have wicked hearts of a slave. We're enslaved to bondage and sin, and we don't love him. And God wants us to have a heart of a son of God who loves him for what he did for us. And that change only happens through the gospel. Many of you can't love God because you're trying to do so in the power of your flesh. 
and our flesh is bent in opposition to God, and you can't change that no matter how many resolutions you're going to make to be different. No matter how many times you come to church, deep down you think God is only a judge who's going to punish you for doing what you really want to do. So like Martin Luther, you hate the law. And the more you're commanded to love God, the more you hate him and you resist him and you resent him because of his law. What if you saw that even in your sin, God wasn't angry at you? That even in your messed up state, even throughout all of the times that you have screwed up and failed God, that God doesn't hate you, that God loves you. And he says, I see your messed up heart. I see that you don't really desire me and that you hate my law. And I'm not telling you that you have to change that in order for me to accept you, but try. And come before me with an open heart. What I'm telling you is that if you come to me, I'll change your heart into something different. All you have to do is submit to me and believe and I will be like the locomotive in those, on those train tracks. I'll put the coal. I'll create the steam. I'll make that locomotive move down those tracks where it's supposed to go when you come before me. The gospel is not change and I'll accept you. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is admit that you need to be changed, submit to God, and trust him to do it, and he will change you. Because we know that we can't change ourselves. It's only through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God says, you don't have to do anything to earn my approval or anything to, in your own power to change your heart. I will do it for you if you'll just submit. My approval is a gift purchased by Christ and given to you when you simply receive it, and I will change your heart into one that desires right things when you trust in the power of the Spirit to do it. And as God changes your heart, those things you used to push against, that law that you used to hate, your desires change. Your desire becomes, I want to please God. I want to glorify him. I want my life to be a reflection of his love for me. And you begin to love that law that you used to hate. Why? Because the desires in you have been changed by the power of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we come before you today thanking you for the great and marvelous God that you are. Lord, I think about the, the difficult passage that this was today, thinking about Paul trying to explain to this young Galatian church and even our church today how how the law interacts with the gospel. God, I pray today that if there's anyone here today that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, maybe they feel like, I have broken every single law almost every day of my life. 
and God doesn't want me, God hates me, God wants nothing to do with me, God, I pray that if there's someone today feeling that way, that they'll look at the message of Paul and say that it's not by the keeping of the law, but it's by faith in the finished work of the cross that God wants. God says, come to me in faith, and I'll change your heart. God, I pray if there's someone here today that needs you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be their day of salvation. And we ask it all in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen.